Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for well-qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. Good morning and welcome to another edition of Better Living. This is a show about the people and organizations that make an impact around Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm your host, Jeff Miles of Miles in the Morning on 98.7 KLove. Thank you so much for joining me. This week, we're going to focus on two very important DFW nonprofits. First is Mark Lombard. Uh, he's the founder and president of For Love and Art. Good morning, Mark. How are you? Good morning, Jeff. I'm awesome. Very Glad good. To be alive. Uh, you know what? And in, in a time like this, it feels like just those simple things are, are the biggest joys, right? Absolutely. Uh, so you have an organization. It's called For Love and Art. And by the way, if you want to see their website, it's forloveandart.org. Um, tell me, first of all, what the mission is, and especially how that applies to this strange pandemic world that we're living in right now. Sure. Our mission is all about quality of life. So we believe that viewing artwork unleashes powerful, creative, and unique experiences for people. And when they share these experiences, they elevate their quality of life in four very important ways. Psychosocially, cognitively, spiritually, and physically. So we, we, conduct, we partner with museums from around the world. We currently have 29 partner museums, mm-hmm. uh, and they give us permission to use their collections, and we showcase these collections to people. Now we're doing this via Zoom, and we ask them to share their experience as they view the artwork, because we know when you share your experience, you elevate quality of life in so many different ways. Right. So our mission is to bring the art experience to people with limited mobility. We stimulate art appreciation while loving people in powerful and creative ways. I will say that uh, I was looking on your website for loveandart.org, and I know that you also uh, do a lot for veterans as well, correct? We do. We have a whole branch called Veterans for Love and Art. So our original orientation or iteration of this program, Jeff, was to download images from museums with their permission onto something we call virtual museum art books. These would be uh, presented digital frames. These are digital frames, kind of like not quite an iPad. It doesn't doesn't connect with the internet. And we'd have uh, 10, 15, 20 different museum collections on these, and we'd endow these to VA medical centers and uh, hospice groups, nonprofit hospice groups or for-profit hospice groups. But the whole intention is for it to have the hospice volunteer or the volunteers at these centers to go around to the veterans, go around to their patients and showcase the artwork and actually engage them to share their experience as they view it. And the intimacy that's created, I have a story. Can I tell you a story? Yes, please. So I'm a hospice volunteer. This is how this whole project started was in hospice volunteering. And um, I had this uh, little old lady, her name was Miss Billy, and she was very, very classy. She always dressed up for me during my visitations, which is pretty special when you right. think about it. And we both shared a passion for art. And uh, she started to lose strength in her legs. And her therapist said, Miss Billy, you should do these uh, leg exercises and build up your leg strength. Well, that didn't sound too appealing to her, but I told her, come on, Miss Billy, build up your leg strength. I'll take you to the Kimball Museum in Fort Worth. And boy, that's all the carrot that she needed. She loved that idea and did her exercises twice a day, but it still didn't work out. It did not work out, and she was slowly losing strength in her legs. She was not going to walk again. So kind of to keep my promise, I started bringing postcards from the museums in the Metroplex Uh for her. Every visit, I'd bring her a different postcard, a different uh, painting. And for her, it wasn't just a pretty picture. 
Now, people think that artwork is just a pretty picture. I'd look at her eyes and they'd sparkle as she viewed these postcards. There's like a party going on inside her. Oh, wow. And there's this one, one postcard from the Eamon Carter in particular. Uh, it's called Idle Hours uh, by an American Impressionist. And it's a family picnicking by a body of water there. It's turn of the century. People have parasols. And it's very relaxing and very cool, very beautiful. And I presented this postcard to her, and uh, she looked at me, and she looked at it, and she looked at me, and she looked at it, and she said, you know, Mark, I wish I was right there. And she pointed to the, the figure closest to the water. And I'm looking at her, and I'm realizing Miss Billy is no longer in that little room in Grand Prairie, Texas, that she's no longer worried about her hygiene or what's for lunch or her, you know, how much time she has left or any other daily worries and concerns that people nearing the end of life face. She is idling away the hours with her family by a lake. Wow. And I thought, man, this is the art experience being made real. I remember having that thought, Jeff. I thought this is the art experience being made real. And six months later, I was in a leadership program, and they said, you have to do a project. I'm like, well, I guess, you know, what a great project it would be to bring this art experience to people with limited mobility. I don't have a million dollars. I don't have an advanced degree in art. I like art. I'm passionate about art. I've learned a lot through YouTube and books and, and visiting museums myself. But, you know, who am I to start a project that, that deals with museums? Are you kidding? That's like a, that's like a different world than, than what I live in, mm -hmm. really, to do business with these people. But uh, I sent a letter out to all the area museums, and uh, the Eamon Carter called me up. They said, come in here. We have to talk. So I came in. I met with a woman named Catherine Maloney. God bless her. And she sat down, and she said, listen, what you describe in your letter is very important to this museum. And personally, it's very important to me because I just put my father in a nursing home. Hmm. And I have a particular, like, interest in what you discuss, what you describe. I didn't know what shape this project would take. I thought maybe maybe a, a, a museum educator would come in and talk to a nursing home, and I'd complete my project, and boom, there would be. But she pulled out from underneath her desk a digital frame and said, we've been experimenting with this, and this seems to be the best way to convey artwork. I'm like, whoa. So that light bulb started going off. This project, Jeff. It took 80 days from its formulation, from its conception, to its inauguration at the Dallas Museum of Art at the Horseshoe Auditorium. Oh, wow. Isn't that interesting? So, so the first thing we did, the platform became obvious to us. Now, I had to go out, okay, what are we going to use this platform for? What are we going to put on this digital frame? And I started approaching the museums, little old me, you know, who am I, who am I, who am I? It's kind of like the Marianne Williams thing things. It's yeah. Like, it's like... It's like, who am I not to? So I just, you know, girded my loins and you know, I started reaching out to museums and I asked them for their collections. I asked them if we could use their collections. And back in 2010, it was really, really restricted. This is how museums made money. But to my surprise, you know, we fit their community outreach programs, their community outreach goals. We were able to bring art and what art provides, mind, body, and soul to people with the grassroots. So one by one, the museum said, yes, yes, we'll partner with you. You can use these images. And, you know, they're very careful about which images, and it's, you know, contractually based and all of that. Right. And we download all the images onto the virtual frame. And on um, October 30th of 2010, we had this presentation at the DMA. We endowed 13 hospices with the virtual museum art books so that their volunteers, all the volunteer coordinators were there. And the point was like a library book. Their volunteers would check these art books out and go in to their patients and share the artwork and listen to what people had to say. That's the important thing. It's art triggers conversations about matters in life that are important to people. So you get, you have people talking about, you know, for Miss Billy, it was just like, you know, being with family. Right with family back in the day, and it just it, it transformed all the worry that she had, all the loneliness that she had, all the boredom that she experienced day-to-day -day living, all the, you know, the fear of the unknown. It's very tough for, in hospice, like the biggest challenge we have is to get people through the fear 
part of end of life. Right. You know, and once they get through that, they're not they're not sure which direction they're going. Are they going up? Are they going down? You know, did I did they do it right? Did they live life well? Is their family going to be taken care of? Did they make any mistakes? Uh-huh. What if there's nothing when they go? You know, what if there's this big existential void? You know, all of these cause anxiety and worry. But once we lead people through that, there is like peace. There is harmony, there's acceptance, there's love, there's like kind of like a, a sense of gratitude for having lived life, for having had the opportunity to live life. Would you say that um, there's a, a part of this, it's especially through the artwork and through all the different, um, uh, obviously the, 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 the artwork itself brings memories or brings in even thoughts or things that maybe you haven't experienced before, that it almost kind of creates a mental bucket list that you're able to kind of check off and it kind of gives you that sense of peace of, okay, I did that. Well, I'll give you an, another example. That's that's well said. It triggers conversation. People want to talk about what art triggers. Yeah. But nobody has the conversation with them. Right. So no, we kind of like generated since 2016. We've been going into nursing homes, into assisted living, and uh-huh. I have group presentations. You know, I'd hook my computer up to a big screen TV and showcase the artwork, and ask the seniors to share their thoughts, share their feelings as they view these beautiful works by Monet and Winslow Homer and everyone else. And there's this one beautiful, beautiful painting by George in a springtime in New Jersey. And it's really remarkably beautiful. It's dusk. The full moon is out. Even though it's, it's dusk, you can see the moon. And there's a bright green dogwood tree there blossoming. There's a bright pink dogwood tree. There's a bright white dogwood tree and a, a muted yellow house in the background. and very green and lush grass. And it's a big panoramic scene. And smack dab in the middle of the painting, really, really small, is this woman kind of walking at a diagonal towards us. It's called Springtime in New Jersey, Mm -hmm. George Ennis, look it up. I think it's beautiful. I think it causes peace. It has me be so peaceful. It's this really wonderful painting. And I showcased it to Miss Johnny. And I said, Miss Johnny, what do you think of this? Now she's one of 24, the 24 other seniors in this, all all watching the presentation. And she studied it and she thought, and I didn't rush her. And she said, that woman is worried about her children. And that wasn't anything that I thought. I thought she'd say, oh, how beautiful is this? Mm-hmm. Look yeah. at those pinks. Look at those blues. Look, you can see the moon. You know, none of that. No no peace, none of that. That woman is worried about her children. And the magic of this project is that we listen without bias. It's unbiased listening. So it's when somebody expresses what their experience is, we accept that. We accept that as being their experience and not necessarily the truth. You know, but so I, I got... Oh, that woman is worried about her children. And Miss Johnny said, yes, she is. So and it's I like thought, a their perception is their reality of when they're looking at whatever piece of art that is. Exactly. That's that's kind of like the point. That's to sum up the whole project. Perception is reality. Yeah. But but my response to her and my response to that was, well, that woman must love her children. And she said, yes, that woman loves her children very, very much. And I said, well, Miss Johnny, I want you to know that her kids are just fine, and her kids love their mother very, very much, too. And she burst into laughter. She was freed from the right underneath the surface, all the seniors you know. Do you have kids, Jeff? I do. I've got uh, two young kids, as a matter of fact, yes. There you go. Every parent everywhere, their job is to worry about their kids incessantly. So it wouldn't take much, you know, underneath the, the subconscious or whatever, you've got this worry about the kids. And Miss mm-hmm. Johnny and all the seniors in that room escaped from that prison. It's like a prison that you have. It's just like, you know, just in the back of your mind, you're worried about your kids. Are they fine? And nobody talks to them about it. Everybody says, Miss Johnny, are you okay today? And she'll go, yeah, I'm fine. I'm good. Good weather, isn't it? They talk about the weather. Yeah. But the matters in life that are important to them, like their kids and how much they love their kids and how, the, how they worry about them, that's never discussed. So and basically, you're, you're going beyond the surface level uh, uh, thoughts and everything else that is probably where they seem to be living most of their life right now. And you go deeper into, um, you know, the stuff that does matter. Exactly. Exactly. And all that and, and what supplants the worry and the boredom and the fear the uh, loneliness is beauty. 
mm-hmm. and, and joy and this magic of life. There's like, you know, once this conversation is completed and you see that it's not bad or wrong to worry about your kids, it's like it means you love them. Yeah. That's what that worry means is that you really love your kids. Boy, talk about getting out of prison. You know, she can now, now there could be a free, free conversation about that every now and then. And that wasn't just a triumph of victory for Miss Johnny that she broke out of her prison. Everybody in that room burst into applause because it was a shared human experience. Now, when you do this, Mark, and uh, once again, we're on the phone with Mark Lombard. He's the founder and uh, president of For Love and Art, and uh, their website is forloveandart.org. Um, you're basically sharing the world's art with uh, those with limited mobility. Um, and uh, there are many different, I'm sure, factors that, that include limited mobility. Uh, I mean, many different ages, uh, many different uh, demographics and things like that. Um when, when you started to contact and, and get in touch with these different museums, uh, what was that reception like when you first started to, you know, uh, organize all of these museums from around the world? Yeah, well, I'll tell you, I got pretty cocky pretty fast because the first, <laughs> in the Metroplex, you know, people were, you know, they they knew they knew the Amy Carter. What's the Amy Carter? So, the first museum that partnered with us was the Meadows, the Meadows at SMU. Uh-huh. And that was because I had a friend who was on their board, and I kind of worked my way through that, you know, not having the courage to actually be the spokesperson. I, I worked that out. And then I went to the Amy Carter, and of course they're on board. You know, it's very important to them. So we got their collection, and then across the street to the Kimball, and the Kimball was very receptive. I talked to Connie over there, one of the uh, art educators. Uh, and then the DMA came on board full full force. They even gave us the Reeves Collection, which is a really closely protected collection. And uh, just their participation was wonderful. So at this time, I thought, okay, wonderful, great. We got a good thing going here. Uh, my partner has to take his medical boards. So he's going to fly to Washington, D.C. to do some kind of course for the boards. And I said, I'm going to go with you. I'm going to go to the National Gallery of Art. This is the Smithsonian. I was about to ask about the Smithsonian to see if it was part of this. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So I walked into the National Gallery. I had all this write-up about the project, and I went up to the information desk, and I said, ma'am, can you tell me who your grantor of rights and reproduction is? And she looked at me across. She was just a volunteer. She didn't know what I was talking about. So we got out the federal directory. It's like this telephone book of people who work in the federal government. And we tracked down a guy named Peter. And we call up Peter, and I'm on the phone with Peter, and I'm describing the project to Peter. I'm like, you know, we use your artwork to induce beauty and joy and magic of life to people nearing the end of end of life. And, you know, we ask for your partnership. And he listened to me very generously, and then he said, Mark, that sounds like a great project, but you have to understand this is the National Gallery of Art, and we're a nonprofit organization. If we were just to give away our imagery, we wouldn't stay in business very long. And these decisions are made at levels much higher than mine. It takes a couple of years to process Uh requests like yours. So please leave the information at the front desk. And in effect, don't call us. We'll call you. That's what I heard. I don't really know what he said. But yeah, so I failed. And I'm like, damn, I failed. Came back to Washington, came back to Dallas. I thought, okay, I didn't get the National Gallery, but there are a whole lot more museums to go after. But one thing that Peter did give me was the contact person for the woman ultimately responsible for the the artwork, the permission. And a week later, Jeff, 7 o'clock at night, Dallas time, I said, damn it, I'm going to write this woman an email. And I sat down and I wrote, dear Miss Bernard, I'm sure you get uh, hundreds of requests for educational projects each and every year. This is not an educational project. This is a project of mercy. And in 20 minutes, she responded to me. So at 8.20 p.m. Eastern time, she responded to me and said, you have a blessed project. I give you permission to use whatever you want from the National Gallery of Art. Wow. So we didn't, we didn't get any sleep that night. It was like, whoa, we, you know, we're going national now. So <laughs> right. this, this whole thing's kind of taking shape. And then we got the Crystal Bridges Museum. We got the Art Institute of Chicago. We got the Getty, you know, the, the Vincent Van Gogh, the irises for Pete's sake. And then the Met kept talking to us back and forth. We'd, we'd exchange emails. What about this? What about that? And very close to our inauguration, they sent me an email saying, on behalf of our board of directors, we've decided to partner with you and your your great project. 
And I'm like, wow, we got the Met. And I, I went in. By this time, I'm friends with all the people, all the educators at these museums, the area museums. Uh -huh. And I ran into the DMA, and I said, we got the Met. And they're like, what? And I said, we got the Met. And they said, huh? <laughs> I said, we got the Met. And they said, nobody gets the Met. The Met doesn't have to do stuff like that. They're the Met. And they said, because they are the Met and they partnered with you, any other museum would be, would, you know, that's sufficient vetting to warrant the participation for any museum. So the Met became one of our charter museums, the, the Phillips Collection. So we started over 10 museums who said yes. And we downloaded their imagery onto these art books. We started endowing uh, hospices and VA medical centers. We had this big event at the Amon Carter, all about veterans. So all the all veterans from every uh, VAMC, uh, Veteran Administration Medical Center in all of Texas, there were like 17 of them, okay. came, to, came to Fort Worth, you know, for this presentation. We had an honor guard there, and, uh, you know, we just loved the veterans. So, uh, so we endowed each and every VA medical center with a virtual museum art book, you know, to be used by volunteers to go around and elicit the art experience, to share the art experience with people at bedside. Mark, I want to ask you real quick, um, again, Mark Lombard on the phone with us right now, founder and president of For Love and Art. Uh, it's an excellent organization that shares the art of the world with those with limited mobility. Um, when you're putting together uh, these um, these digital art books, um, what do you do then? Is it is it uh, volunteers that now take these to different organizations, or I mean, is it uh, do you take it to somebody's house? Yes. I mean, uh, uh, tell me about all the different uh, ways that people can actually become uh, involved as as far as uh, donating their time and, and being one of the people that can kind of be a steward for this. Okay, well, our original or iteration, our formulation was to endow these to hospices, and their hospice volunteers would use them as library books and take them out to people that they serve. You see, so it'd be like a, a hospice volunteer using it as an engagement tool to right. raise the quality of life from people and to really spark conversations that are important to people. In 2016, we started giving the group presentations in nursing homes and community centers. You know, we used the opportunity to go in and make presentations to people with limited mobility who are stuck in nursing homes, and they can't get out to the museums. Mm -hmm. You know, even though they love it. And part of our, you know, we stimulate art appreciation. So it's not just about what do you think, how does it make you feel. There is an educational component, but it's not the context from which we're coming. We're coming from therapeutic love. We're like, share your experience. What do you have to say about this? And we listen to that and we get it. So we honor people. We honor their points of view, honor, love, and cherish. So, um so that's the second iteration. The third iteration is Zoom. So, you know, we had 77 clients, Jeff, in the Metroplex. We had a chapter going in San Diego, a chapter in Tulsa, a chapter in um, Austin. Uh -huh. We had a chapter in New York City, a small one. And then COVID hit and everything shut down. They, they locked us out. And they're like, man, this really stinks. Because, you know, when you do this, and you do this over and over again, like once or twice a month, I would go in and make hour-long presentations. We'd visit a different museum every time I go, and we'd all have share this wonderful experience, which ultimately culminates in a joy for being alive. Mm -hmm. Thank you, God. It's mm -hmm. beautiful. But that was gone. And the, the day that, you know, somebody told me it's going to be at least a year before the senior centers, I just, like, I burst into tears because these are really good friends of mine. See, I know like 600 seniors by their first name in the Metroplex. Uh -huh. But that's the quality of the relationship that we garner. So now we're on Zoom and we have daily presentations. It's open to anybody because everybody's in social isolation now. Right. You know, the lockdown. And the terrible thing about social isolation is that People are despairing. You know, I, I got my hair cut the other day, and my barber talked about a client that she had who runs a drug rehab center. And he told her that their weekly intake was between three and nine people a week. And these days, it's three to nine people a day. Right. So people are out of work. They don't, oh, I think I'll drink some wine. You know, there's nothing better to do. Help me pass the time. And then they realize they can't stop. They realize they have a problem there. Right. So our program, so psychosocial, you know, those, those four elements of quality of life that are so important, the psychosocial, the community, the love, the communication, the sharing. Cognitive. There's a cognitive, you know, when people do crossword puzzles, you know, it's fun to figure things out. 
you have to really you have to learn a thing or two. You have to really distinguish what your experience is before you share it. But there's a big cognitive component to what we do, and the stronger your cognitive quality of life, the greater your overall quality of life. There's a spiritual element. So we call this peace, this inner peace, and this contentment, and this like gratitude. We take people into their higher selves. This is really, we talk about, you know, seeing light. When you see a painting, a portrait, you see light in the eyes. We say, there's a child of God. Can you see that child of God? It's the same mm. when I look in your eyes and I see the light in your eyes. I see a child of God. Yeah. And that takes people out of their physical selves, I'm telling you. And the fourth one is uh, physical. Speaking of physical, physical quality of life has always been tough. How do you measure joy? Mm-hmm. But two years ago, there was a, a researcher in England named Daisy Fancourt, and she measured the endorphin levels in the bloodstream for people exposed to art. And she concluded biochemically, epidemiologically, every way to look at it, one trip to the museum has the health equivalent of four trips, excuse me, one trip to the museum has the health equivalent of four trips to the gymnasium. Wow. That's, so yeah. the endorphins that are stimulated by the exposure to beauty over and over and over again it's like a runner finishing a marathon. They have this runner's high, this euphoria. Yeah, yeah. And, and that kind of well-being radiates through the body. It's, you know, the opposite of stress. You know, it's the opposite of cortisol and the, the, the deleterious effects of worry and stress. This just, like, really repairs all of that. And it restores people to their higher selves. We call the people who make these... So one way people can participate is to actually become an art angel, one of the presenters uh-huh. of these programs. And you don't have to have an advanced degree in history or art history or know much about art. You just have to be really good with people and what we call engagement conversations. Uh-huh. You know, like like I did with Miss Miss uh, Johnny. Uh-huh. Oh, that woman must love her children. You know, anything she would say, right. I would use that to get deeper, deeper into her experience. Now, uh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah. Oh, that's okay. Uh uh, to, to join us online to actually tell their friends and families uh, who are isolated, who are suffering, especially seniors, but not necessarily limited to seniors, um, to join us on Zoom. We have daily presentations. If you go to our website, you'll see we have one at 1030 in the morning. We visit uh, a museum. We have one at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. We visit a different museum. And we have these presentations in the evenings on Thursday. We have them on different times, but our event calendar designates when the presentations are mm-hmm. and we're just really we have 27 we just added the van gogh museum and the oh, hammer wow. museum but we've got uh we've got quite a bounty here we have over 2700 paintings that we use to uh induce beauty and joy and magic of life one of the things i think if you go to the website at forloveandart.org as i'm sitting here scrolling through all of your partner museums and uh, i i've been to a few of these. And I think that for many people, um, especially if they are in uh, maybe your senior facility or something like that, is they may have a memory of being to one of these uh, particular, like I've been to the Smithsonian before and I've been to uh, the Met before. And as I, I can only imagine that they're going through that experience where it's kind of, they, they recall that, that feeling of what it was like to be there in person. Yes. And that's just got to be phenomenal for them. It is. That's one of the things that frequently comes up, those kinds of memories. But, you, you know, we introduce fine art to people who have never, you know, they thought that this was way over their head. These are the fun communities. These right. are the elderly poor. Uh-huh. The elderly poor, I'm telling you, they have more fun with these presentations because they don't think they have to know about the artwork. Right. A lot of people are, like, constrained to share because, you know, I, I might say the wrong thing. Yeah. But for these people, they just let it out. Oh, this reminds me of Uncle Joe. Yeah. You know, he was a great guy back in the day. Do, 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 do. And then everybody thinks about people that they love in their lives. Do you see? So it's like a, it's like being human. It's, just... it's not. And that's the, that's the, the magic of this project is, it, is that it's not from a context of education. It's not from a context of aesthetics. Like, isn't that beautiful? It is from a context of love. Mm-hmm. We really have people cherish being alive. It's just a, a really interesting phenomenon. And, uh, you know, we say that it enriches souls. That's awesome. It enriches souls. So if you, if, you, if you ever want to have your soul enriched, come and join us. And, uh, you know, we always say that the soul, starting with our own, <laughs> yeah. for the Art Angels. 
I love that. So, you know, I just want to, you know, one of the quotes that really inspired me along the way, Albert Schweitzer was this uh, German philanthropic physician who worked in Africa and was very wise. And he said the tragedy in life is not that we die. It's what dies inside us while we're still alive. Correct. So that's what we're doing. We are restoring that which has died inside people bit by bit, and we're repairing the world. Ultimately, the cause for all the evil in the world, and it's up to us to repair it. These little acts of mercy go a long way in repairing the world and to make it whole again. You just describe what needs to happen right now. <laughs> like, what the just, world needs yes, now, man. Gosh, I mean, more than anything else, as divided as we are, as divisive as, as, as it seems like you could take any subject on the planet and make it a divisive subject. And, you know, we, we need so much more of what you're talking about right now. We need all of these mitzvahs to happen right now. Now, doctors in England and Canada are already writing prescriptions to their patients to visit the museum rather than take an opioid. Or oh, I love there. that. I love that. So this whole field called arts and health mm-hmm. and, and our practice our discipline is called therapeutic art it's it's finely defined carefully defined as the sharing of experience between two equal people uh that's like on the forefront we find ourselves now in this day and age you know, even though back then we didn't know what we were doing right. in 2010 yeah. really and now we, we're kind of like the industry leaders in therapeutic art and partnering with museums and, and completing their community outreach programs and providing all this joy, kind of like, you know, repairing the world. I love it. It has been what the world needs now, Jeff, has been and will be and is now, you know, love. And, you know, it's the song, you know, what the world needs it's now true. is love. Yeah. So. But we add the words and art to that. Yeah. So what the world needs now is love and art. There you go. I love it. Mark, thank you so much for all of your time today. Uh, Once again, Mark Lombard, he's the founder and president of For Love and Art, which is uh, bringing the art experience to people with limited mobility. And if you'd like more information, you can go to their website at forloveandart.org. Love what you're doing, Mark. It's uh, it's, it's something, like we said, we all need right now. Okay. God bless you. So welcome once again to Better Living. This is a show about the people and organizations that make a huge impact here in and around Dallas-Fort Worth. Up next, we've got Margie Wright. She's the executive director of the Suicide Crisis Center of North Texas. You can get more information on their website at sccenter.org. Good morning, Margie. How are you? Good morning. I'm, I'm great. Your mission at the uh, Suicide Crisis Center here in North Texas is uh, helping those in crisis, especially the suicidal crisis, um, and finding hope for their future. I would only imagine that now more than ever, your services are needed all all over North Texas. And you would be right. Um, it's It's been a really difficult time because, you know, we're dealing with COVID just like everyone else is. And, mm-hmm. um, We've had a limited number of people who've been able to volunteer and come help us. So um, people people are feeling pretty isolated and depressed and sad and uh, hopeless and um, just like just like the rest of us. But it, it does affect some people more emotionally than others, obviously. Right. Do you do you feel like that um, there is a sense of uh, if someone is, is, is suffering from depression or they're even having thoughts of suicide, do you feel like there is uh, an apprehension, so to speak, of wanting to reach out to uh, a help center such as yours? No, I, I actually think that, that we're one of the places they are reaching out to because uh, it's pretty non-judgmental and they're talking to somebody they don't know. And sometimes it's easier to tell really awful things to somebody who doesn't know you. Yeah. <laughs> you know, a, a, an identified voice on the other end of the phone. And we try to be that for people. And uh, as one of my volunteers says, um, just hearing that warm voice is really helpful sometimes. So it's better than reaching out to your family because sometimes people are like, oh, get over it. And we don't say that, obviously. Right. Uh, When it comes to somebody who may be in your family, um, what are some of the signs? The signs are the same kind of things you see in general for depression. People who are, and of course, it's kind of hard to judge nowadays because 
everything is so topsy-turvy, but people who are having problems with eating or sleeping or uh, communicating, uh, there's a lot of uh, stuff that happens with uh, poor hygiene. Uh, if people are really suicidal, they start talking about giving their stuff away. Uh, sometimes people openly just say, I, I wish I was dead, or I wish I'd be better off dead, or other people would be better off without me. Things like that are real clues. Um, sometimes people are just depressed and they're not wanting to kill themselves, but uh, anything you think of that is kind of smacks of depression also smacks of suicide. Do you, that makes sense. It does. And I, I think another question for a lot of people is that, you know, they, they, they do kind of uh, if, if you if you know somebody who's depressed and you know somebody who's going through a really uh, a, a difficult time, it is the feeling of, OK, at what point, like, where's the line where I need to reach out to someone uh, at the suicide center in order to get this person help? Like how early on or or how far along is, is that process? You see what I'm saying? I do see what you're saying, and, and, and we struggle with that all the time. Um, people, if you're concerned about someone, uh, you're welcome to call us anytime because we really do help. We don't just talk to the depressed person. We talk to people who are concerned about them, and we sometimes can give them some help, you know, some direction to go. Um I think the, the the number one thing I would say is if if you are concerned about someone, a loved one, a person in your family, your your neighbor, whatever, it really, really does not hurt to say to them, "Are you thinking about hurting yourself? Have you thought about suicide?" That's we teach that all the time. Ask the question, and I promise you, if you ask the question to someone, you're not going to give them the idea. That was one of the first things I had to learn when I came here. I thought, oh, you shouldn't ask. Well, yeah, you should ask. If you're that concerned, you should say to them, are you thinking about killing yourself? Are you thinking about not being here anymore? And people, and I've interviewed a lot of people in 20 years, will all say they were so relieved that somebody asked them. And if they're not thinking that, then they'll be offended and they'll go, no, not at all. Then you've got your answer. Right. Either way. Right, yeah. Um, but it, And it's important that we put that information out there. I imagine there's a lot of people who are thinking to themselves, I don't want to ask that question. I don't want to make them feel uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. I think the problem is is they, they're already uncomfortable, and that's why they're feeling the way that they do. Mm-hmm. And that, that's probably the number one myth that we try to clear up for people all the time is that if you're concerned, ask the question. Uh, you know, for example, you know, if I were to say that to you right now, you'd probably go, no, I'm not. Right. Uh, but if you are thinking about it, sometimes it's a relief. I can't tell you how many people have told me I was so relieved when somebody called it, you know, and I was able to talk about it. So you're doing people a favor when you ask. And I promise none of us are so vulnerable that it's going to, you know, like, oh, I wasn't thinking about that, but now I'll go do it. We're not going to plant that seed in people's minds. Do you feel like, too, for a lot of uh, a lot of people who may be having thoughts of suicide, um, that they're looking for someone to talk to and they're looking for someone to ask that question because yes. they don't necessarily, I mean, they're already uh, going through a difficult time as it is. And the idea of uh, maybe they feel like they don't want to put that on someone else. And so by asking the question, you're giving them the open forum to now speak about that. Right. You're giving them a, per- a permission. Right. And it does it does help. I promise. Um, I was like I say when I came here a little over twenty years ago. It was one of the first things I learned, and I thought, well, that didn't make sense. But right. I've seen it, and I know it does work. So uh, um, we at one point had a promo called "Ask the Question." Just right. ask people. Uh, it's really one of the kindest and most loving things you can do. And if people are not great. Then they can say to you, why would you think that about me? You know? right. And then you can have a dialogue. But if they are, a lot of times they'll say, yes, and I don't know what to do from here. And there is no wrong answer on that. No, no. 
I think that's one of the most important things. Margie Wright is on the phone with us right now, the executive director of the Suicide Crisis Center uh, of North Texas. Um, By the way, you can visit their website if you'd like more information at sccenter.org. One of the things that I wanted to just kind of throw out there, and, you know, sometimes it's uncomfortable to talk about suicide. It's uncomfortable to talk about depression for a lot of people, but we need to get the information out. Um, Just on the did you know section of your website, it says suicide is the second leading cause of death for ages 15 to 34 in Texas. That is alarming. Um, and it is something that I guarantee you a lot of people go about their daily life and never even think about. Um, but for that, for that to be the second leading cause of death for people who are so young, um, brings up so many thoughts and so many questions that we should be talking about this awareness so much more. Also that suicide is the 11th leading cause of death here in the state of Texas. And that more than twice as many people die by suicide in Texas than by homicide every year. Um, this is a, this is an epidemic of sorts. It is. Uh, years ago when I first came here, we had a, uh, Surgeon General who declared it was a national um, epidemic, a national health crisis. Right. It still is yeah. because um, I just looked up the most recent numbers that have, you know, we're always a couple of years behind because of the CDC and whatever. But in uh, 2018, there were 48,344 suicides in the United States. That's a lot. Wow. And, uh, before all the pandemic, you know, one of the big talks has always been, oh, we need to prevent these killings. We need to pre- prevent these homicides. Uh, you know, we've, we've got to prevent murders. Well, I, I agree with that. But it was stunning, and it is stunning to me to know that there are twice as many people who kill themselves as kill each other. Right. And that's uh, that's alarming. Uh when it comes to, uh, we talked before about, you know, if you're someone and, and, and uh, you're, you're feeling, you know, depressed or like you need to speak with someone, that you should never feel apprehensive about that whatsoever. Um, but are there specific signs that if there's someone you know and they start having exhibiting certain types of behaviors, that you need to start asking questions? For some people, there are, and it, the main the main signs are real changes in behavior. Uh, like, of course, it's kind of hard point of reference right now because everything's so upside down. But right. uh, kids who start having trouble in school, I don't mean they're making B's instead of A's. I'm talking about uh, kids who change their peer group, um, people in their 20s who no longer hang out with their friends. Or they they change their peer groups, or people who start missing work all the time, or kids who start skipping school. Uh, it's just different kind of changes in behaviors from what you consider quote unquote normal. Right. Um, is substance abuse or maybe alcohol uh, things like that increase use? Probably something that should be yes, alarming. Definitely. Definitely. Um, as it pertains to. Uh, especially young people. Um, if you've got kids, uh, I know that this is something that parents are probably concerned about on, the, on a regular basis. I've got two small children myself, and uh, you do wonder especially how the current state of this pandemic life that we're all living in. I've had many conversations with, with my children who I've got one that's six and one that's about to be nine. And when I talk to my, my daughter, who's almost nine, um, we have asked her, hey, how do you feel about everything that's going on right now. And there is a sense that until you ask that question amongst some of these young people, um, they, they don't know even how to start that conversation. And, you know, by asking the question, um, my daughter broke down and she was in tears and she says, I hate this life that we're living in right now. I miss my friends. I miss, you know, things like that. Are you experiencing more, Margie, of, a, of, of, a, of a, uh, people reaching out because of these types of things in this, in this you know, isolated yes. life that we're all living in? Yes. And first of all, you just supported my thing about ask the question. Right, yeah. (laughs) Uh, Yes, we are. The majority of the calls we're getting right now are um, not so much suicide. I mean, they can lead to that. But what we're getting is exactly what your daughter just described, people who are – 
they're so distressed by the change that they're having to go through, the fact that they can't see their friends, the fact that they can't socialize. Uh, I have some grandkids in that age range who, you know, have missed everybody's birthday, uh, no birthday parties. Um, I think I think people need to talk about those things. You know, those of us who are not seeing our grandkids and haven't seen them since February, those are real things to people, and real life things. And we're allowing people the chance to do that. Um, it's a crisis, but it's also a warm line for people to call and just say what they're feeling. And sometimes it helps just to get it out of out of inside of you and say it out, you know, just anything. A ther- therapist will tell you that. Get it out of you and put it on the shelf. At least it's not stirring around inside of you. And we're, we're seeing a lot of anxiety because people don't know when this is going to end. People don't know when this is going to end, and we all don't. We also, uh, you know, we got to check on our friends and neighbors. Um, and with that said, do you feel like there's also a sense for some some people, and this is not everyone, uh, obviously, uh, depression can come in many different forms. And for some people, uh, there's almost a sense of, well, I don't want it. It's almost embarrassing if I admit that I'm depressed. Right. Right. Um. But so sometimes people call us and they don't they don't say they're depressed and they cloak it into you know being worried about other people or you know we all do that sometimes um, but um, we we're, we're just mostly seeing people who are feeling uh, anxious out of the un- uncertainty of things. Uh, and two of the things we say about suicide are it really comes from hopelessness and helplessness. And this pandemic is a recipe for hopeless and helpless if you if you really boil it down. Right. People feel hopeless right now. I do. Um, and then helpless to do anything about it. I mean, I think that's more frustrating to all of us to think, what can I do? You know, I can wear my mask and I can socially distance, but... What can I do to impact the curve of this? And there's not a lot. So hopeless and helpless together are a lot of what we're hearing right now. There's a a huge sense right now for a lot of people who, um, to kind of echo what you're talking about, is is there's this sense of, I have no idea when it's going to end, but I also have no idea what to do and what is the absolute on the right thing to do. And unfortunately, right now, it feels like there is no absolute on this is what's going to work and this is what's not going to work. There seems to be this gigantic gray area for so many people. And I feel like that that alone can send people into just a spiral. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, those are the people who are calling us. Uh, once again, Margie Wright is the executive director of the Suicide Center of North Texas. Um, on your website, uh, there's a lot of great information. You can actually use the text line that you have. Um, you can text the word CONNECT to 741741, and that's any time, correct? Right, right. And there are people who will text you back, and that's helpful. It, it is. really is, because a lot of people don't like to talk. Um, and if, if the text will then be, if if you give us permission, then we can get, give somebody to call you, too. But right. we, we don't insist on that. So that does then give people the opportunity, if they need to speak with someone, that they can do it via text. It's a, it's a, listen, things have changed in our world. The technology has come this far. And there are many people who, uh, you know, younger people, they've got a phone in their hand and they have no idea what it does other than text messaging and social That's media. Right. That's right. Um, so there's a lot of those people. <laughs> right. And, 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 and I'll be honest with you. There are times that I want to, would rather text with someone than actually having the, the phone conversation. So that option is there. Now, uh, will those text conversations, um, are they pretty in-depth and they're pretty involved? They can actually have that entire, you know, uh, 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 session basically over, over text? Yes. Okay. They can. They can. It's more than something like I'm saying. I mean, you, you can lay out there what's going on and they will text you back um, and really try to engage with you. They're, they're crisis line trained people, but they're doing it by text. Gotcha. So it is more in depth than you would think like, a, okay, or 
LOL or something like that. There's a lot more to it. Absolutely. Uh, there's also the uh, the um, suicide hotline that's 214-828-1000. Um, not to get deep into the statistics as far as, you know, uh, to, to make people feel uh, uneasy about this. But um, is there a I mean, is there is there a gauge as far as like how much that has increased um, on your hotline since we've been in, in the COVID-19 pandemic? I think the last thing I ran was about uh, not double, but 50 percent more than okay. we usually get. If that makes sense, instead of whatever we had, we got another 50% more people calling us. And uh, I will say that the calls that we have gotten have seemed to be more serious, if that makes any sense. Absolutely. The severity, I'm sure, has put, uh, you know, I see, here's the thing that I know that a lot of people are considering right now uh, as far as, you know, uh, what's happening in this pandemic world that we're living in is that, you know, people didn't stop being depressed and then all of a sudden picked up depression whenever COVID started. No. Uh, many people had uh, depression issues before COVID started, and this has just exacerbated that, right? Right. Absolutely. I would imagine Absolutely. I would imagine that uh, uh, as far as people um, getting involved and helping on your end, uh, is there a way for people to volunteer to become uh, or, or to help out with with what you're doing? See, that's one of our stressors right now. No, because we have training, but our training is in person. We can't do it virtually because much of our training is interactive and uh, much of it is. Uh, you know, where they're required to come in and be supervised by a person here. And until the till we get some kind of answer on that, we're we're having to just go with who we've got. We just we've had we've got a waiting list of people who are wanting to help us. But um, we're part we're in a an area where we're not even allowed to have group meetings. Obviously, right. You don't want to put a bunch of people in a group together. Yeah, yeah. Right now, so uh, it's been very hard, very very hard. It's very distressing to think. I mean, we usually have at least two classes a year of twenty or more people, and we've had to we had to stop the one in the spring, and we haven't been able to start one in the fall. We're hoping to be able to do another one next spring. But, uh, Margie, how do how do people get involved and help out right now? If they can't volunteer, is there another way to get involved or to at least help what you're what you're trying to accomplish here? The only the only thing that I could think of, and I you know I hate to use this as a forum, is that you know we're like everybody else, every other nonprofit, because we do need people to donate to us. Uh, you know, even a $25 donation helps because we're, we're trying to keep the doors open and keep the lights on. And a lot of our major funders are not funding anyone right now because I think they're all suffering, too, you know, right down the line. The domino so, effect has taken over right now. It's every every aspect of what we do. You know, I'll be working on something. I'll think, oh, I can't do that either. So um, that's probably the main thing because we can't support any volunteers here um, unless somebody wanted to volunteer to do some something outside of the office and I'm not sure what that would be right <laughs> at, this, yeah. at this point well and that's the hard part again going back to the we, we, we there's a huge gray area of, right. <laughs> of of ways to accomplish that so right right um, so I I'm, I'm going to ask this question on a on a pseudo personal level um, and just kind of asking both you and, and all of those who volunteer uh, at the Suicide Crisis Center here in North Texas. How are you doing? Um, how are the volunteers doing? Because you guys do so much to help so many people. I can only imagine the toll it takes on you as well. Well, um for the most part, the volunteers that I have who are working, mm -hmm. and there's not many because so many people have uh, health issues or age issues or, you know, whatever. Um, the ones who are coming here are doing okay. They feel like they're they're doing, doing God's work. <laughs> right, yeah. Uh, and uh, I haven't heard anything bad come out of any of their mouths. They've all felt like they can do something to help. 
Right. Um, my staff feels the same way. We're working in kind of limited ways, like I'm not always in the office, and we're never in the office at the same time, or there might mm-hmm. only be one other person here. So we've tried to keep our distance. Um, you know, for me, I live alone. I have not seen my grandchildren since February. I um, only see one person every now and then who works here. <laughs> right, yeah. The human interaction is not happening near as, as much as it should. Right, and I'm a super social person, so right. I, I, it has really shut a lot of things down. But the fact that I, I think what's helped me is to come here and help other people. Right. Uh, does that make sense? It does. <laughs> um, it, it's that's the you, you do the work of an angel, um, <laughs> which is extremely selfless, and it is uh, uh, extremely helpful and beneficial. And yet, you put your own feelings aside, and and you uh, you you you. Uh, I always think about people in in the line of work that you're in, and it takes a very strong individual and just someone with so much compassion and empathy. So, well, I, that's. Uh... It's been my, my whole life's work, something to do with social work. So I guess you hit the nail on the head. And well, how are you doing? I'm, I'm you know, uh, I'm like so many other people. Uh, and I think it's, there's good days and bad days. Um, right. And, you know, you try to turn and make everything as positive as you possibly can. Um, I, like many other people, my, my family and I, we, we try to limit the, the amount of news that we're consuming because it feels like there's so much negative news going on right now. Um, it's not just a pandemic. We've got social issues that are happening right now. There, oh, yeah. There's uh, political issues uh, that, that, are, that are happening right now that, that seem to really, t- you know, tip people off right now and, and uh, my family and I, we try to do what so many other people do in the sense of we try to avoid those types of conversations, if at all possible. Oh, yeah. That's, um, that's very healthy. <laughs> and and the reason being is is that, you know, I, I do try to consider the fact of, you know, whatever that conversation is with someone else. And this may be something that if you're listening right now, uh, maybe something to consider as well is that maybe you don't engage in so much of that because you don't know the other person m- may be feeling um, anxious and you don't want to push them any further than they probably are already feeling, right? Right, exactly. Uh, yeah, one of our favorite sayings around here is be kind. You don't know what somebody else is going through. Uh, we, we always think about um, ourselves in, in, in our own personal environment, um, but you never know what's happening behind the other closed door. You don't, and you don't know what's in somebody's mind. You don't know what happened to them yesterday. You don't know what kind of experiences they had when they were younger, and a lot of that is being brought up now, too. Uh, you're absolutely right. Um, it's it's interesting that you bring up that point because I think for many people, uh, they've had a lot of time, um, you know, on on the on the uh, positive side, on the you know opportunity side. A lot of people have been going through the 23andMe or or, or maybe Ancestry.com. They start looking into historical things with their families and this, that, and the other. Uh, for some people, the history of family may not necessarily be the most enlightening thing, and and unfortunately, they may be uh, it may. Take Take them into a place that's not necessarily the most positive. Um, I know. With mm-hmm. it's, it's almost like we're kind of suffering from that. We've got too much time on our hands at times. Right. And, right. Uh, th- and when it first happened, I think people were kind of relieved. It's like I don't have to run up and down the road all the time. I don't have to go to every event. I, you know, you you kind of take a breath, and then after a while, you think. Then you start ruminating. I think people are, you know, getting into things that maybe they don't need to. Think up again. <laughs> I, uh, I I read a meme. I thought that it was pretty funny um, a couple of days ago. At the same time, it, it brings a lot of uh, uh, of clarity to uh, I think where a lot of people are feeling right now. It says, "I miss the days when I used to go into the office and complain about leaving the office." <laughs> uh-huh. And uh, uh-huh. it, I, th- I think a lot of people are in that place right now. Or the one that says uh, I read last week that said uh, my trash goes out more often than I do. <laughs> yes, exactly. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Margie, um, I just want to say thank you so much for what you're doing. And once again, um, you're an angel. And I think everyone that's working in your organization are angels as well. Well, we appreciate you saying that. I don't know that we're very angelic, but we are pretty dedicated. I did manage to get us declared essential 
when this first happened. I right. Throw that in because you know initially we weren't, and we thought you know I had. How is that I possible? Call, I did call you know county commissioner and say. What about my people? Because they need to be able to answer these calls. And so we're considered an essential service now. Well, that is uh, as it should be. And, so uh, so we're, we're glad to be here. And uh, we're, we're just like everybody else. We're hoping it will end soon. And we're trying to keep a positive attitude. And we're trying to help other people with their attitudes. Right. And now more than ever, that seems to be at uh, top of mind, I think. And mm-hmm. and it should be top of mind for everyone. So Absolutely. Well, Margie, Absolutely. I appreciate your time today. Thank you so much for uh, for this conversation and hopefully a conversation Absolutely. that could hopefully help uh, someone that's listening right now or someone that someone knows uh, uh, to okay. reach out. So Okay. All right. Thanks again. I appreciate it. You got it. Have a great week, okay? Okay. Thank you. If you'd like more information about the Suicide Crisis Center of North Texas, you can go to their website at sccenter.org. On their website, uh, you can find more information about their mission, which is helping those in crisis, especially suicidal crisis, and help find hope for the future. Um, They also can give you the signs of suicide if there's somebody that you know that may be suffering from depression. Also, the do's and don'ts when dealing with a person who might be suicidal. Once again, my name is Jeff Miles, and thank you so much for joining us on another edition of Better Living, a show about people and organizations that make a huge impact here in and around Dallas, Fort Worth. (sighs) Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? We make getting custom window treatments a minor project with major impact. Choose from premium blinds, shades, and shutters. We even have options for your patio, too. Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Our design experts can help you find the perfect window treatments on your schedule. We'll even send free samples directly to you. Plus, we can handle the measuring and installation for you. Unlimited window treatments installed for just one low cost. And with Blinds.com, you'll always get transparent pricing. No hidden fees. Our free shipping and 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step. And into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com right now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off for a limited time at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply.